Matthew 6, 1 to 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Let's pray that prayer we pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. How many of you out there are Seinfeld fans? I'm not exactly like a fanboy or anything like that in the traditional sense, but I think I've seen every episode under the sun just by osmosis. I feel like it's on all the time. And the character that I I simultaneously uh, love and hate the most is George. George can be a hard character to watch, in part because he's relatable, but also because everything he does and says is hysterically cringeworthy. And I can usually picture myself in a similar situation, but one episode came to mind this week. There's an episode where George goes to pick up some takeout at a restaurant, and he leaves a tip in the jar. But he's concerned that the guy behind the counter didn't see him do it. And he's concerned that he's going to get lesser service because the guy doesn't know. And in fact, the guy might even resent me for not leaving a tip. And, you know, I'm not not that kind of guy. And of course, George can't just let anything go. And so he needs to clear the record and establish his reputation. So the next time he goes, he's determined to leave a generous tip and let it be seen. So he goes in to pick up the order and he drops like whatever, I don't know, a 20 in the jar. But he times it wrong again, and the guy is turned around and he doesn't see that George did this. And of course, George doesn't want to let the same mistake happen twice, so he goes back to the jar and pulls the money out so that he can try again. If you can see where this is going, because predictably the guy turns around and sees George apparently stealing money now out of the tip jar, and hilarity ensues, and he gets thrown out, and he's trying in vain to explain what happened, and now he can never show his face in there again, and once again he looks like a complete idiot which is his role on the show. Uh, He is the insecure loser who's concerned with his legacy but has nothing to show for it. But this demonstrates that it pays to know who's watching, right? George gets this comically wrong all the time, and, and George is easy to dump on because he's a caricature, but there's a lot we can relate to here, I think, if we're honest. It's funny because we know where he's coming from. We all like to be thought of as generous, I think. You know, or at the very least, we don't want to be considered stingy. Not all of us are blessed with Scottish or Swedish blood, right? And even most Scots would deny being stingy. Stingy people just define stingy differently than the rest of us, right? We all do this with everything. You know, I'm not an angry person. I just have a temper sometimes, you know. I'm not jealous. I'm just protective, you know. I'm not lazy. I just have fatigue issues, you know, something like that. We all move the goalpost. And it's certainly not less any less true when it comes to the question of generosity. Uh, we don't want the stingy label. We want the generous label, but we want it at the lowest possible cost. But it's a question of image. So using the example from George, you know, a tip in a restaurant, that's supposed to function as a gift, right? It's not officially part of the transaction. It's not what pays for the food, but we want it to purchase goodwill and a good opinion of ourselves as being good tippers. 
and I can relate to George because I definitely try to tip when someone can see me so that they won't think I'm a jerk. Now, I won't do it when they're looking right at me. That would be too obvious. But I, I try to catch them when I can tell that they can just see me in their periphery, and then I'll slip it in there, right? And then it looks like it was nonchalant. That's a shame because, you know, you could drop coins in there and that would make noise and then they could tell that you put something in there. But then again, coins have no value. So, you know, they don't know if you're dropping quarters or nickels. So that's not good. Coins come across as cheap. But then again, bills don't make any sound at all. So this requires a lot of skill. This is a lot of thought goes into this process when you're going to tip people at the restaurant or at the counter. And sometimes we will tip heavily because it seems deserved. Uh, one time we went to a restaurant with all the kids, and it was only at the time because we had a gift card. And uh, they purposely seated us out of the way, seeing that we had all these kids and figuring we're going to make a lot of racket. And I, I could tell that we looked like the types who aren't great tippers. We were too child poor to do that kind of thing. So I was a little self-conscious, but the meal was really good, and the waitress was great. And at the end, I handed her this gift card, and you could see the look on her face. She's like, these people don't even have cash. They're not tippers. So just to prove a point, I left a generous tip. But I also purposely dragged my feet before leaving so that I could be sure that she noticed that I left a generous tip. And she even came over and thanked me, hence undermining my heavenly reward. It's not just tipping. We, we give some money to this or that charity all the time. We do it out of a sense of obligation. Sometimes it's just coins, right? Every now and again, on a Sunday morning, I will remember that we need something for the church, say, uh, at Giant, and I'll run over there for half and half for coffee hour, whatever. And that means that I'm going there on my way to church. It's not like I got up early enough to do it you know, any other way, and so that means I'm wearing a collar. And this is always awkward, depending on where you go. Um, if I stop at Wawa on 15th Street for half and half, everybody calls me father, and it's kind of strange. Uh, I feel almost obligated to blame Yes, my child. Um, but even at Giant, I always do the self-checkout, and, and the machine always asks if I want to round up the total to give a gift to some charity, and it could be the local food bank or school lunch programs, whatever it may be. Now, I usually don't bother, especially with the school lunch programs. I'm like, I pay enough taxes. They can figure that out on their own. But it feels really awkward to be wearing a collar and say no. So I find myself checking around to see if anyone's looking before I push that button. Now, all of these examples relate to my image, really. I, I, I'm no different than George. I'm George reaching into the tip jar and dropping the money again so that I get credit. And, and it's funny because the people I'm trying to impress, these are not powerful people, right? To the contrary, I, I'm talking about the waitresses and the baristas and the shelving clerks at Giant, right? I, but I don't want anyone to think that I'm cheap, even if I am. Giving, however, is a key part of the Christian life. And really, you know, any giving, the word here actually in this text, it doesn't necessarily mean money. It kind of implies money, but the word is really translated as pity or compassion, to do an act of pity or compassion. So Jesus is talking about giving support, financial or otherwise, to the needy, giving something up to benefit someone else. Charity, in other words. And even though we live in an increasingly secular society, uh, we believe in charity. Nobody gives to charity more than Americans do. That's a statistical fact. And you can tell that charities must be doing well because we have so many of them, and 
also because so many of them are so stupid. Uh, only in America can some of these charities you know, be such wealthy and powerful organizations and be supporting the weirdest things and they pass themselves off as charities that just need your help to survive, you know. And this could be, you know, whatever, animal rights groups, PBS, Trinity Broadcasting Network. That's amazing. Those clowns have golden pianos on the stage and they're still in the top 10 recipients of charity in the United States. It's disgusting, isn't it? You can look it up and, and you'll see there are hundreds of charities that people have researched that are just straight up scams that still float around out there. But our charitable streak is something that many organizations, they're very eager to take advantage of that American sense of charity. And that brings up another problem with charitable giving. We all want credit for giving, but we also hate feeling like we got hoodwinked, right? So that's why I don't like to give to organizations I've never heard of, and it's also why I don't like giving money to strangers on the street. I tend to assume the money is going to be used poorly. So the one time when I went to Wawa wearing my collar and, you know, a guy asked me for a handout, of course, I couldn't say no wearing that getup. But, you know, I make a point not to give him cash because I, I don't want it to be misused. So I bought him a, a sandwich and a cup of coffee and he was he was happy with that. But we don't like throwing money away. And if we do give, we want proper credit. We want to see where the money went and that it was effective. Uh, we want to know where the money is going and am I making a difference with my money? And I think many of us apply this logic to our church giving and tithing as well. I think giving to the work of the church is an important biblical concept, but many people give less than they should. Some people don't give at all. It's only a small percentage of people that faithfully tithe in any American church. So maybe I'm including some of you in that number. I don't know. I don't see the numbers. But I think that that lack of giving is driven sometimes by those same motivations because we all like to be considered generous, but we know that the tithe numbers are kept secret. So you're not going to get recognition for giving, right? And furthermore, if we don't like being hoodwinked, we will also be reluctant to give if we feel like we're throwing our money away. So some people don't give to their church because they don't see the point. They don't know what the church is accomplishing, what they're doing, and they don't trust the church to make good use of it. So they don't give. Now, some of that failure is on the part of potential givers, but a lot of it's on the fault of church leadership. I think it falls on their shoulders. Because if a church doesn't have a clear vision and a clear sense of direction that everyone can understand and get excited about, then people won't give as much. That's just a fact. Now, it's the job of the elders in this church to set vision and mission, and we have not really done that in my time here. And I do think it's time that we did. And we are planning to go on an elders retreat this summer for that very purpose. I think we need to refine our vision if we expect people to get excited. But my point is that if people don't feel like they're personally making a difference and they can't see where the money goes, they are much less likely to give. That's just a fact of life. But Jesus doesn't let us off the hook that easily just because you did some analysis. This whole chapter is, is about practicing righteousness. It's about the basic things that we do as God's people, the fundamental ways that we do good deeds. We all want to be good deed doers, as the Wizard of Oz words it, right? And, and he, he ends up summarizing it really kind of in a short list. It's three things, mostly, that, that, that you do in your religious life. You, you, you ch there's charity, there's prayer, and there's fasting. Those are his basic categories he's going to touch on. 
And in ancient Israel, that, that was a good summary of how you lived a good religious life. And it's not too different from what a lot of religions teach, is it? Charity, prayer, and fasting are practiced in many religions. It's not a, 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 you know, exceptional that we would do such things. It's basic acts of religiosity, and, and Jesus isn't downplaying those things, but that's a fact. They're, they're pretty broad. But he starts this chapter with a command, and it becomes the overarching theme of the chapter, and it sets Christian religiosity apart from worldly religiosity. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I find it interesting that Jesus says not to practice righteousness for an audience, not because that would be self-aggrandizing or prideful. He doesn't spiritualize the problem in that way. He says you'll lose an even bigger prize, which tells us a few interesting things right off the bat. It tells us that our Father in heaven has every intention of rewarding good behavior. And that good deeds are not just their own re reward, regardless of what your mother may have told you, right? There is a reward for good deeds. We don't have to be good for goodness sake. This week, George and I saw a flyer for a lost cat, and it was an ugly cat too. And the reward they were offering was $1,000 if you could find this cat. That's a big chunk of change for something I'd rather run over. <laughs> But Jesus is saying there are much bigger rewards for doing righteous deeds if, if you keep your mouth shut about it. If you do good deeds, Jesus says, does not say just be satisfied with feeling good about it. To the contrary, he implies that there's actually a significant reward involved. There's a prize for good behavior if you wait for it. However, the prize is invalidated as soon as we check to see who was watching. If we do good things, charity of any kind, to impress our parents or our children or our spouse or our boss or neighbors, your pastor, or even complete strangers, then we forfeit God's reward. And not just in part, Jesus says we will receive no reward from him. So it's a very costly mistake. And not only that, he does not say here that we lose the reward only when other people see and praise us for our good deeds, but just because we wanted their praise. It's not conditioned on receiving accolades from people. They don't even have to see it because the crime lies in your intent. If I do something good in order to win the praise of something, someone other than God, even if they don't see me, I've already invalidated the reward. It's like a gift certificate to Howard Johnson or Blockbuster at that point. It's just a scrap of paper now. It's worthless. So Jesus' theme for this chapter is clear from the start that the Christian life is not about your legacy and you need to pay attention to who's watching. And Jesus applies this principle first to our charitable giving. And sadly, for us, he doesn't answer the questions that we usually ask when it comes to giving. I always want to know where the money is going and what the results are going to be and how much should I give. The amount is, is an important question to me. And also, am I going to be recognized for it somehow? Because even with charity, I secretly want to know that there's something in it for me, even if all I get is a thank you or a tax receipt or the satisfaction of knowing it made a difference. I just like it to be acknowledged somehow. I want to be able to feel good about it. 
But Jesus doesn't address any of those questions, does he? He doesn't tell you what percentage to give or where. And he doesn't talk about whether or not these people might squander it or not. Or even whether it really makes a big difference. No, he simply takes it as a given that we will give money toward the kingdom work and that we should not expect any recognition for it. So verse 2, he says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So when, not if, but when, you give to any charity... Don't be like the hypocrites. Jesus says it is hypocritical to give to the needy when you're really doing it to impress others. Now, of course, we see politicians do this kind of thing all the time. Every politician loves to visit the scene of a tragedy or visit factory workers where they would never usually set foot, right? And why do they do it? They do it in large part because it looks good in the press. They might care about these people, but they're not doing it out of pure goodwill ever. They know they're going to receive good press coverage. And Jesus says that's hypocritical. Why? Well, because it's putting on a show. The word hypocrite in Greek is actually a theatrical term. A hypocrite is one who is play acting. It's basically the word means actor. It's a compound word that means to be under the judgment of the critics. In other words, a hypocrite is, is playing to his critics. They're making a sales pitch, if you like. And what they're selling in reality is themselves. That's a little different than how we typically use that word. Uh, we usually define hypocrite as somebody who just says one thing and does something else. Uh, you know, people who don't live up to their own rules. That's probably true of most of us as well, right? But, but Jesus' definition is actually more convicting because I can barely think of any time I have given to charity or done anything good and not wanted recognition of some kind. At least the self-satisfaction of knowing that I made a difference. I may give anonymously to some charity, but I will certainly tell my wife all about it. And not just because we have a shared bank account. She never looks at that thing anyway. I just want her to think highly of me. I want the recognition just a little. And you see this in secular society, for sure. You know, big-time donors, if they throw a whole lot of money at a building project, they expect their name to appear on the building they paid for, right? General Trexler has his name on half of Lehigh County, and why not? He paid for it. Or even small donors. Like, I, my high school asks for donations from alumni, and the promise is that they'll, they'll put your name on a wall tile, along with your class number, and it'll be in the main hallway there. Like, why? So some stupid sophomore can graffiti on it in a couple of years, and it'll be forgotten, right? You know, but we all want the recognition, some, some little thing there. And, and it's not just a way of making us look generous. It's a way of showing off our wealth, A, because you know we have it to give it away, but it's also a way of preserving our name, literally cementing a legacy. Why else would you want a tile on that wall in that dirty hall? Charity can almost become a means of achieving eternal life. I may die, but my good name will live on. Harry Trexler dies, but his estate lives on. Now, I don't say that as a criticism of Trexler. You know, I think he was a blessing to the city. I'm just observing that there's a human tendency to let charity become about our legacy. We're not content to do good. We want to be well thought of now, and we want to have a good reputation even when we're gone. 
that's not all bad, and it's not even unnatural. Nobody wants people to spit on their graves. You want to be remembered well, sure, but we also so easily slip into an obsession with what everyone else thinks, even in the future. And in spite of Jesus' words, this attitude is pervasive even within the church. And it doesn't, you don't have to go far. You can visit any number of churches and see all the stained glass windows that are named after Henry and Gladys O'Malley or whatever, you know, some wealthy, important family from the church's history. And, and they'll put names on the Bibles and, you know, given, given in honor of, you know, and, and, then, and then hymnals. And the choir loft can get its own name. And, you know, the so-and-so memorial library and bathroom or whatever. I had a Westminster professor who pastored a church that was literally named after some kid who had died in like World War I or something. And it was like pulling teeth to get them to change this thing. And here's the thing. Jesus knows that even for his disciples, there is this irrepressible urge to create a legacy. To not only do good deeds, but also let people know that we did good deeds. And this frequently shows up in how we spend our money. Charities, even Christian ones, will actually appeal to that desire. They will try to entice you with the sense of something permanent that will be established and maintained by your gift, that your legacy will live on somehow. And it's an appeal to idolatry, really. We want something tangible to demonstrate our generosity, a plaque, or our name listed in the credits, a sandwich on the menu, whatever it is. Just something to acknowledge that we did something. Otherwise, it's like nothing happened. Like if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it. Like if I give to charity or the church and no one knows, does it even count? If I didn't get a tax receipt, does it even count? But Jesus calls this hypocrisy. You're putting on a show. Your charity is really about your legacy, which means that you'll get no reward. Last month, we went to visit some friends, and while we were there, they had a neighbor who came out and gave us some spinach. Now, this was on a farm. They had plenty of spinach from the garden, and she even acknowledged that they were actually likely to throw most of it away, and that's why she was giving it to me. So I thanked her, and that was fine. But she couldn't help but make a sales pitch about her character. She says, well, we see it as our duty to provide fresh produce to our community. And I thought to myself, oh, you're one of those people a good deed doer if ever there was one. And I suddenly almost regretted taking it because she was so self-congratulatory about it. It wasn't about the spinach. It was about burnishing her self-image. I'm doing this because I identify as generous. Pray don't mention it. But, you know, that irritated me. But honestly, who am I to point fingers? Don't, I, like, don't we all do this? We're all hypocrites when it comes to this stuff, even if we look selfless in the moment. We often, at the very least, privately end up patting ourselves on the back. And Jesus says, every time you congratulate yourself, your reward is shattered. When you toot your own horn, that's all you get. By the way, it's nice to know that Jesus came up with that saying. It wasn't just my parents tooting your own horn. But it's kind of hard to imagine literally blowing a trumpet to announce that you're giving to charity. But if you toot your own horn, even figuratively, that's it. That's all you get. Hope you enjoyed the parade. All right, so we shouldn't do charity to impress other people. But surely there can't be anything wrong with doing it for our own enjoyment. You know, if I keep my generosity to myself, why not enjoy it? How else do you do charity? And this is where Jesus starts to make things really complicated. 
He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Couple things here. We've officially reached impossible territory. This is going to sound stupid. There was a time uh, when I was a teenager when I tried to do this literally. Uh, I, I used to literally bring my tithe money to church and I would hand it to myself behind my back. <laughs> it would have looked very much like I was like dealing drugs to myself or something. And then I would try to drop it nonchalantly into the basket. And sometimes I would simultaneously try to forget how much I gave. I even mastered what I, you know, a signature move, really. I should have given it a name. I, I used to, once I did the little pass and I had the money in this hand, I would take the basket with the money hand. And in the same motion that I took it, I would release the money so that my giving would be completely masked to the deacon who handed it to me. This was true sleight of hand, you know, the hand quicker than the eye. This was ridiculous, I just hope you realize. Jesus is clearly using some hyperbole here. John Stott points out that it would be ridiculous to try to do this literally when you're deliberately writing a check for the offering that morning, right? We have to plan and budget and decide in advance what we're going to give. And I realize we can't literally keep secrets from ourselves. And moreover, this whole command... It could be seen as contradicting what Jesus said in chapter 5, because back there he told us to let our lights shine before others, and here he's telling, telling us to keep ourselves in the dark, which sounds silly. But again, if you read it as hyperbole, you know, perhaps the best explanation I read was a quote, well, it was Stott quoting A.B. Bruce, who said his formula was, show when tempted to hide, hide when tempted to show. In other words, don't let fear of man keep you from obeying God, but don't let approval of man be your motive either. And Jesus is saying that particularly when it comes to charity, our mindset should be secretive. Don't advertise your charity to others. In fact, don't even advertise it to yourself. Give to the kingdom and then forget about it. Don't keep a tally of how much you've given. Don't even worry about the results. That doesn't mean that you should give to disreputable organizations. But once you do your research, give it and forget it. And let the hand be faster than the eye. And if you can do that, Jesus promises that you'll be rewarded because the Father sees in secret. Father sees in secret. That could sound a little worrisome, couldn't it? Almost creepy. Jesus means it to be encouraging because it means that every kind and generous act that no one ever saw and history has forgotten, he's kept a record. He knows. And I think, I, I fancy well, when we get to heaven, I think stories will be told of generous deeds that even the doer forgot about, you know? He's keeping score and it's going to be a good thing. It's going to be a, a, a lot of cool stories and yet... It's so hard. It's really hard. Generosity is hard enough for a lot of us. But the number one way that Satan undermines our charity is not to stop it entirely, but to corrupt it with pride. Why is it so hard for us? Well, I think there are two simple reasons. The first is that we don't really believe what Jesus says here. We don't really believe that God will reward us. 
In daily practice, we don't live like we believe in the judgment or heaven or eternity. And we tend to believe that the only way we're ever going to receive anything good for our efforts is if we go get it ourselves. And it's a form of atheism, like most sin, because we don't believe God will reward us and we don't believe he sees in secret. And if he does, we almost resent that. In practice, we, we really live like we can hide from him if we want to. Our tendency, however, is to hide our sin, which should be exposed, and to broadcast our goodness, which should be kept between you and God. If, if he really sees in secret, it's going to really mess with our system for how we usually do things, isn't it? We do it that way because we don't really believe that he's watching. We don't really believe in punishments and rewards, and we functionally act as if he isn't there. And if we don't believe that we have a heavenly audience, we will inevitably be putting on a show for an earthly one. Our behavior will be driven by whoever we think is watching. See how sneaky sin is, and how it poisons the mind. Our biggest concern is our legacy. So we end up, what we end up doing is, is curating an image of ourselves, and it's a marketing gimmick. Every one of us has a self that we conceal and another self that we put on display. You know, privacy in our mind isn't for the good stuff. That doesn't make sense. Brian Regan says that they didn't invent whispering for compliments, you know? So we hide the dirt and we publish the good stuff. That's the whole point of social media. That's how that works, right? And not just us as individuals. Churches do this stuff too. Every church website is designed to make the church look more diverse with lots of kids, everyone laughing and jam-packed on Sunday mornings, right? Businesses and secular organizations do exactly the same thing. We all want to be judged by our public image, but Jesus says that we, as his disciples, should be different. The problem is, is that we forget who our audience is. We're all busy curating an image of ourselves and putting on a show for the world, and Jesus says we're screwing ourselves out of the bigger prize. We're settling for, for attaboys and Facebook likes and the admiration of strangers, while meanwhile our Heavenly Father is offering heavenly rewards, and we just don't care. It's not real enough. It's not in the here and now, and so it can't motivate us. And God who sees and judges our secret selves, that's bad news for many of us because we want him to respect our privacy and act like the rest of the audience. Well, I feel like the application of this passage is kind of obvious in a way. It's obvious that we should be engaged in mercy ministry and giving. We should have pity on the poor. We should care about those who are suffering emotionally and spiritually. We should give to church. And obviously, in the midst of all that, we shouldn't be bragging about it. Apparently, we shouldn't dwell on it much at all. But the danger and temptation is not so much that we will refuse to do any good, but that we will do it for the wrong audience because we are not convinced that he's watching or paying attention. We get it all backwards. And left to ourselves, I'd venture to say that I'm pretty sure most of us couldn't really be expecting much of a reward for any of our charity by the time we get there. 
I'm fairly certain I've screwed this up pretty much every time. If not in the moment, even when I've been altruistic in a moment, by the time 24 hours has elapsed, I've told somebody. I've undermined it somehow. So what do we do with this? What does the gospel say to people like me who can't seem to do right even when we're doing good? What does the gospel say to those of us who manage to screw up even charity? who spend so much of our lives performing for the wrong audience and forgetting who's watching. Well, I think that the most important thing you can do, if nothing else, is to take yourselves out of the shoes of the generous giver in this analogy and in this this lesson and put yourself into the shoes of the beggar. Because again, you're not the hero of the story. Jesus is. And you have much more in common with the needy. And you need what other beggars need. So today is Pentecost Sunday, and we are in part celebrating the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? That's a day worth celebrating. But Georgia pointed something out to me, and I'm going to take us there briefly to a scene that happened immediately after Pentecost. We read earlier out of chapter 2, but there's a scene in chapter 3, and it's actually the first detailed scene that we get after the Pentecost events. And, of all things, it involves a request for charity. Perfect time to encapsulate and and put into application Jesus' words in Matthew 6. In Acts 3, it says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What I take from this is that the Holy Spirit is less concerned with money and food and clothes Because what every beggar needs more than anything else is not spare change or a cup of coffee or free housing. What they need is Jesus. And I also don't think it's an accident that Jesus, in his sermon there in Matthew 6, uses that term that is translated as alms, but it really translates as pity or compassion. Three times that phrase appears in the Greek. And Young's literal translation doesn't even mention giving to the needy. That's kind of supplied words. They translate it as doing kindness. Jesus is calling on us to do kindness and to have pity and to give what you have. And there is nothing you have that is more valuable than Jesus. And apart from him, he would have nothing to offer anyway. Evangelism truly is one beggar telling the other where to get bread, and there's an awful lot of beggars out there. The spiritual poverty around you runs deep, and not every beggar looks like a beggar. All of them need a savior. Even the George Costanzas of the world need a savior. So all that's to say, let's give away what we've got.
You can give money, you can give food, you can give clothing, that's all good, but the most kind and compassionate and charitable thing that you can give away is Jesus. So do it. And remember who your audience is. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we are not by nature a generous people. We are not particularly charitable, and Lord, even when we are, we do it for selfish means and motives. Lord, we forget that you're watching us. We may intellectually know that you are, but we live as if that's not actually true. We've reversed our worlds, Lord. We, we put our best foot forward and we hide all of the bad stuff. Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to turn that world upside down. Lord, let our sin be exposed and destroyed and let our good deeds be secrets between us and you that you can tell everybody about in the last day. And Lord, help us to remember that the best thing that we can possibly give away, the best charity we can give is your son. Lord, for those of us who don't have him that are here today, help us to receive him. And for those of us who have him, teach us to give him away. We ask this this week, Lord, and every week. In Christ's name, amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Praise God from whom all blessings